Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have a fantastic show for you today and to have with me Dr. Gabe Tharp, who is an assistant professor of anesthesiology at the University of Vermont. And you may recognize that name because he just published a fantastic article in anesthesiology about how we should think about the pulmonary mechanics in obese people having laparoscopic laparoscopic robotic surgery. And we're going to go through that. We're going to talk about it. And I think it's going to be really informative and interesting. Gabe, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jen. So let me just ask you to start very basically, you know, how'd you get interested in this topic of, you know, and we'll get into this, but driving pressure, transpulmonary pressure, optimal PEEP, um, you know, it's a really, I think, very cutting edge, very interesting topic, but how'd you get interested in it? Um, yeah, thank you for having me, Jed. Uh, this topic uh, was sort of brought up for me uh, by Dr. Patrick Bender uh, while I was in my training. Um, when I was a medical student, I got into anesthesia because I fell in love with the ventilator. And it's definitely one of my, the you know, my favorite pieces of equipment that we have. Um, and then Patrick got me interested in this idea that the things we can see and measure on the ventilator are not necessarily reflected in the forces that end up in the lung. And so this idea of using a method to partition forces and things like that was something we talked about a bunch. And then as, uh, as we sort of moved on towards the um, end of my training, we started talking about doing a study like this. And so Patrick really brought in the, 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 the hardcore pulmonary mechanics aspect, um, and we blended it with my research uh, history in obesity. And um, just we got lucky with our timing and came out with a really nice article. Very cool. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think the article, uh, and just to summarize a little, and please correct me, but, you know, my, my read is that you guys looked at people who were uh, had different levels of obesity, actually from really not obese all the way up to severely morbidly obese, and you looked at different stages of the laparoscopic robotic surgery, starting with when they're intubated but not yet uh, insufflated, not yet uh, robot docked 
going through when the insufflation takes place, going through when their robot is docked and they're in Trendelenburg position, and then at the end when they come off of that. Um, and so I, tell me, were you, what you were looking for, I think, was to figure out what's happening in their lungs around things like collapse, pulmonary mechanics, to try to at least start the conversation around what would be an ideal way to protect the lungs as people go through the surgery. Is that accurate? Yeah, Jed, it, it is. I, the, uh, the idea behind the study was that um, people's body habitus and the surgical conditions may necessitate adjusting the ventilator beyond the, the basic settings that you start with at the beginning of a case. And the, um, but, but how to decide what settings to use um, didn't have a good uh, evidence-based recommendation. Um, and so we thought the first thing to do was really to quantify all the forces involved and decide if there was, you know, try and decide if there was a linear relationship or some sort of relationship between airway mechanics, chest wall mechanics, and, and the lungs in, the, in these patients. Um, and it really kind of was sort of driven by the idea that with low with with the advent of low tidal volume ventilation, one one idea is to open the lungs and keep them open, or to close the lungs and keep them closed. But the idea is that you don't want to have an oscillation between the two types of mechanics. You don't want the alveoli to be opening and closing during tidal volume ventilation, and so. There's been a huge debate in the literature about how to whether or not this is important and how to best achieve those those um, goals. And so here, I don't think we answer whether or not it's uh, uh, going to change clinical practice. But what we've done is is described the range that you might consider using for different types of, of body shapes and different types of surgical maneuvers. Um, and then one thing I just really want to highlight. Uh, Jed, is that at the, uh, uh, if you look at the data carefully, one of the most striking pieces is the variability. And so the idea, one of the major takeaways from this paper is that, yes, obesity and body habits make a big difference. Yes, the, the surgical techniques and conditions make a big difference. But every person is very uh, uh, individual in their mechanics. And so it's very, it, it, it would be inappropriate to simply apply something based only on their, on their um, anthropometrics. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I love a couple of things that you said. One is that there's not a lot of evidence for what we do, right? I mean, I think probably the most common thing is everybody gets five a peep, not because we can all show you all the randomized studies that show that's the right thing to do, but because that's just kind of the default and everybody tells us that in residency that it's, you know, shouldn't be less than five. And we don't really know when to make it more than five, except maybe an ARDS in the ICU. And even then we're not sure what's right. So we don't know. And then the other thing is that, um, you know, the variability is fascinating. And I think that one of the things we'll talk about is, is the how wide it was, because I think Mm. that, some, uh, as you came up with optimal peeps for some of these patients, and one of the things that really caught my eye when I first saw your paper was that some people needed peep significantly higher than I bet almost anyone out there has ever run a patient on. 
during one of these surgeries. And so, you know, I think what I love is this is an eye-opening and mind-opening paper. I don't think, as you said, that it gives you a definitive conclusion. I don't think you can plug in, here's my patient's BMI, and it'll spit out to you what their PEEP should be. But I think it, it says to you, it says to all of us out here that are practicing anesthesia, we probably need to think hard that we may not be using the correct PEEP. Maybe we are, maybe we're not, but we need to really open our minds to the fact that there may be quite a wider range of appropriate PEEP than we think. Yeah, I agree with that. I think one of the the interesting parts of this is how how high those projections got. And 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 there is some literature uh, to support PEEPs in the 20 to 25 centimeter of water range. But I, I um, as you and I have talked about a couple of times, I want to be really clear that this paper is not a prescription for the values that we observe. This is not a uh, set of instructions on what to do. I really want to highlight how much there's intra-individual variability and also that even your lean p- patients may benefit from a higher PEEP. Um, uh, but we should talk about benefits of, <laughs> of, of, of ventilator settings. Um, you know, there's been a lot of work on what's the best thing to do for intraoperative patients and direct application of ICU settings to the operating room have not, uh, are, are not typically the best approach. Um, and there's been a lot of work to try and, and modify or uh, uh, improve um, uh, lo- low tidal volume ventilation uh, in an individualized way. And, and that the whether or not that improves postoperative pulmonary outcomes or reduces the need for you know, respiratory maneuvers afterwards is still very much um, controversial or, or at least being, being studied. Yeah. Absolutely. I think there's a couple of terms that would be helpful to just review. And and I will just remind listeners that if they want to really delve into transpulmonary pressure and driving pressure and and what those are, there's uh, episode 142 with Dr. Vidal Mello, we dedicated the entire episode to, who also, by the way, wrote an editorial to go along with your paper. And his his editorial is fascinating and 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 probably does a better job of explaining the the clinical milieu that this this uh, uh, these data should operate in. I, I actually spoke with him at length yesterday, um, and and I think he did. Um, he was one of the reviewers to this paper, and he did a really really amazing job of of helping shape it into a a, a much uh, a much better manuscript for for the anesthesiology community so this this work uh, uh, owes a lot to him and and his uh his uh, dedication to this topic that's great and as you say he's put a lot of work into this along with others and there i did another episode with dr uh, wiener cronish from mass general on personalized peep following her lecture at asa on that topic so there's a lot of things listeners can check out but let's just review can you just review for me uh what is transpulmonary pressure Sure. So simply the transpulmonary pressure is the pressure gradient across the alveoli. And um, we're able to calculate it as a difference between the airway pressure and the, um, ideally the intrapleural pressure. Um, in practice, measuring intrapleural pressure is a little difficult. You have to put a catheter into the, between the rib cage. And um, just from a patient study standpoint, that can be a little challenging. Uh, but an esophageal balloon is a really well-validated way to make an, uh, a, a measurement that is either um, uh, cl- 
close in absolute numbers or at least um, good in it in terms of the relative differences of each step. And so in this study, the way and, and the way most people are doing these right now is is to measure an airway pressure and esophageal pressure. And the difference between those two is your trans is is the estimate of your transpulmonary pressure. And, and when you say airway way, pressure, we're talking about plateau pressure. Um, airway, yeah. So, well, even at uh, it, not necessarily at the end of inspiration, but just the the pressure that's measured on the ventilator. So, okay. you know, your your um, you know peep is is going to be the end expiratory airway pressure, and your plateau or your or your peak inspiratory pressures are the airway pressures associated with, you know, the, the beginning of, or the, you know, peak of inspiration and the plateau. So at any time point you can measure, you can measure at end inspiration and expiration halfway through, but you're saying that whatever your pressure is at the time you're measuring in the lung mm-hmm. minus the esophageal pressure, that's going to be your transpulmonary pressure. Yeah. The, the measurement, the, the transpulmonary pressure is at any point during the respiratory cycle is the difference between the airway pressure and the esophageal pressure. Um, and the way, we, the way we interpret that is that if the transpulmonary pressure is positive, there, we interpret that under positive pressure ventilation, we interpret that to mean that the alveoli are open. And then if that number is negative, there's more force from the chest wall overcoming the airway, the airway pressure, and we interpret that to mean that the alveoli are closed. Um, and so, in terms of sort of the theoretical um, way to, to think about that is if you have somebody who is ha- has a positive transpulmonary pressure at end inspiration and a negative transpulmonary pressure at end expiration, the, the, the suggestion is that they are having recruitment and de-recruitment of alveoli at some position within the respiratory tree. Right. And it, the idea would be that if you can give them the ideal amount of PEEP, you can prevent that. Yeah, the, the, the application of, of, of these data uh, and, and this idea of individualized ventilation is to take that esophageal manometry data and then to offset the chest wall pressures by increasing your PEEP with a goal of getting your end expiratory transpulmonary pressure to just around zero. Okay. So you set out to determine the ideal PEEP for each patient in your study. How did you use your uh, measurements of transpulmonary pressure to figure out the ideal PEEP? Sure. So we, we measured the transpulmonary pressure at end, at end expiration for all the patients. And then we looked at the PEEP settings that they had on the ventilator. And we made a, a, a we simply summed up what it would take to bring there is the difference between the PEEP setting they had, the end expiratory transpulmonary pressure, and then zero. So the, the optimal PEEP that we calculated is a combination of, um, of those values that then shows you what it would take to, what ventilator setting you would need to bring the transpul- end expiratory transpulmonary pressure to zero. And, so just um, to, let me tell you, let me see if I've got this right. So let's yeah, yeah. say that you measure a patient A and they have an end expiratory transpulmonary pressure of negative three and their um, PEEP is set at five. Yeah. So you want that to be zero. So you would then say the ideal PEEP would be eight? Yes, exactly. Okay. So that's how you figured out ideal PEEP um, and you measured it for, for your patients. Now we'll come back to that, but let's just 
cover, why do we care? And you kind of touched on this, right? Which is that if you don't have enough PEEP, you may have a situation like you described where the alveoli are opening and closing with every breath. And maybe just say a word about why we think that's bad. Sure. Well, so so that uh, broadly, this is falls under impaired pulmonary mechanics. So under normal situation, we consider that the that if you if you consider the um, straw and balloon model of the lungs or the alveoli, the idea is that at, at under normal normal tidal volume ventilation, your alveoli inflates and deflates, but but stays open. There's some uh, pressure or air left at the end of the respiratory cycle. Um, and then when we induce general anesthesia or patients have increased body mass or things like that, you get a, a, a change in those mechanics and you can have a couple of different things. In areas where you have atelectasis or airways closure, um, you may have these um, cycling between opening and closing of the alveoli um, and that causes shear stress. Um, and there's a lot of work being done right now on what kinds of damage and inflammation are associated with, with this. And we're broadly calling that atelect trauma. And then if you, if you think about that, so if you have an area of the bronchial of the alveoli that are closed, you have an area that are opening and closing. You have some area that then is having normal mechanics. And then in some places you're going to have a, uh, situations where the alveoli are being stretched beyond their normal capacity. And that is going to then induce, you know, uh, fractures in the alveoli um, and problems with, um, pro and, and problems that we, we broadly are terming volume trauma. Um, and so you have a mix of these different kinds of, of, um, of impaired mechanics. And the idea behind individualized ventilation is to optimize those mechanics to reduce the amount of tissue that may be undergoing high strain volume trauma type ventilation and to minimize the amount of, of cyclical shearing that may be occurring in, in you know, cyclically atelectatic um, lung. And, and one of the major sort of theoretical underpinnings behind this is the idea that a driving pressure, the difference between your end expiratory pressure and your end it, well, your plateau pressure, so your two major swings of expiration and inspiration, driving pressure is one of the major determinants of, of lung injury in a lot of different situations. Um, and so that in and of itself is, is, is suggestive that at some point you can optimize these, these um, impaired mechanics to give you your best driving pressure. And, and um, that's sort of, that's the major uh, the major idea behind individualized ventilation is optimizing things to reduce driving pressure and 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 reduce the impairments in in pulmonary mechanics. Great. You know, one of the things that I discussed with um, Dr. Vidal Mello and that I, I talk to my residents about all the time is this idea that we, I think, on a basic level are taught high pressure is bad. But we have to be, I think, more detailed than that, right? Because uh, high pressure in, in different patients is not necessarily the same. And I think the, you know, the example uh, that applies to your study, though, obviously, as you said, there's individual variation is that a, uh, non-obese awake person, uh, in, you know, who's supine, let's say, um, or who's, who's, or even who's standing, right. That is a very different, if you, uh, intubate them while they're standing up and you, you know, put pressure, uh, into their lungs, uh, and you have a peak pressure of 50, that's 
probably bad, right? And of course, it depends on the situation, but it's probably bad. On the other hand, if you take a patient with a BMI of 70 and you put them in, you know, standing on their head for a laparoscopic robotic uh, hysterectomy and you, uh, you know, uh, also add, you know, someone sitting on their abdomen, right? I mean, if you just push it to an extreme uh, that and the peak pressure is 50, that actually might be fine. Uh, And again, that doesn't mean it definitely is fine, but it might be because and the way I describe it to my residents is, you know, if you think of you take a balloon, you just blow into the balloon. At some point, that balloon's going to explode. But if you take that same balloon, you put it in a metal box, you can blow as hard and as long and as, as intensely as you want, and it's never going to explode, right? Because you've got this pressure around it, and the pressure, the force you're putting in is being transmitted to that metal box. And so, obviously, we don't have patients in metal boxes, but the, the rigid abdomen full of CO2, the obese weight, the being upside down with the abdominal organs pushing up against the diaphragm, all of that in some ways simulates a box. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah, yeah, it does. And I think the, the, one of the reasons why using a technique like esophageal manometry helps you determine, you know, what, what sort of the physiologic range that you might try and work in is that you, you, you can measure those forces to, a, uh, to a pretty high fidelity. And in, and in this study, um, I'm actually the, the chest wall forces, just if you look at patients just with a uh, pneumoperitoneum, you're talking about uh, uh, when a patient with pneumoperitoneum, you're talking about something around uh, 15 extra centimeters of water on the on the rib cage. And so that in and of itself, if you imagine that your, your patient suddenly is having uh, high peak airway pressures of 40, a lot of that force is being transmitted to the chest wall. And so one of the other things about this study is just the recognition that the forces the lungs are experiencing during these types of surgeries are not necessarily reflected in the numbers that the ventilator is telling you. The, the airway pressure, so an airway pressure of 30 on, in a situation like this does not necessarily mean that the lungs are experiencing an airway of a pressure of 30. And so in that sense, this, this study should help people feel a little more comfortable pushing the, the pressures that the ventilator is reporting, just recognizing that the physiology of what's happening to the lungs is not completely what the what the ventilator is seeing so this this idea that you might limit your p your plateau pressure to 30 may just be a, a, a an arbitrary choice based on data from you know the icu which is not necessarily applicable here absolutely and so i think that's such a key take-home point um so i'm glad you emphasize that uh, so you looked at different BMI categories, um, and uh, you know I think just obviously people might wonder, and they can see in the paper. But were there any significant patient characteristic differences between patients in each BMI category? We we started by making sure that nobody in the um, in in the study had overt lung disease of any kind, and that includes reactive airways disease. We did leave some smokers in. You kind of have to accept some level of, of pragmatism in, in a study like this. But, um, you know, there's, there are some really interesting airway disease phenotypes in obesity that we purposefully avoided. Um, and one is a, a non-atopic asthma and things like that that may predispose people to bronchospasm or problems like that. So really the major, the only major differences in uh, between 
groups here were that our highest BMI groups were mostly women. And that's just some, some has to do with the surgical population at our university and our surgical, um, uh, the, the surgeons uh, recruiting preference or, you know, methods. And then um, the other part is that uh, the patients with obesity had higher rates of obstructive sleep apnea, which has deleterious effects on pulmonary function, but is unavoidable because it's one of the major risk factors. Obesity is the major risk factor for OSD. Right. Yeah, you're not going to find a population where the, the, the skinny people and the obese people have the same rates of OSA, right? We try. Um, okay, so then you measured uh, the um, the transpulmonary pressures at uh, different time points. So you measured when they were supine, then when the abdomen was insufflated, then when they went into Trendelenburg and had the robot docked, and finally at desufflation at the end. And what did you find as those time points progressed? So there's a, a stepwise increase in all the forces involved um, and, and uh, with each of the surgical steps. So with uh, the addition of a pneumoperitoneum, you have an increase in force. And a lot of that force is, is partitioned out to the chest wall or the, you know, the esophageal measurements. Um, and then again, when, you know, each, each stage, when you in, inflate the abdomen or then you uh, tilt the patient into steep Trendelenburg, you get these sequential increases. Um, and but the the one of the interesting things is despite all of that the the pattern of differences among BMIs is essentially preserved at each stage. So you you are simply adding forces with each each maneuver, and then they they typically are going back to just about their baseline measurements at the end of the surgery. It was a little challenging to to look at the recovery um, because there are some different practices in how the surgeons release the pneumoperitoneum and come out of Trendelenburg. And so my uh, idealized version of what was going to happen was definitely not the clinical practice. Um, so, you know, we only have about half the power at the end of the study to talk about how patients recover. But in general, the patterns of, of lung mechanics go back to this, to what's very similar to, to the um, very starting of the surgery. Okay. Interesting. So, uh, when let's just look at the most obese patients, which I think were BMI, was it 35 to 40 or was it over 40? 40 and higher. 40 and higher. So can you give me an idea of what was the range? Uh, and you can ballpark it if you don't have it off the top of your head, but of, of ideal PEEP for the, in that group at, sure. and, and I know it varied from time point. So let's take the most extreme time point when they were in Trend Ellenberg with the robot doc. Yeah, sure. So I actually have the numbers in front of me here. So if you have a patient with a BMI, of greater than 40, um, and they are have abdominal insufflation and they're in steep Trendelenburg, the optimal PEEP settings that we calculated were um, a mean of 21 plus or minus about seven centimeters of water, which okay, is, so is pretty high. I, I think uh, 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 we've talked a little bit about this, uh, but clinically, the upper end of what I've used in, as a rescue maneuver in these kind of situations has been around 23. Um, and so you, you asked me earlier what, what I might do for a patient uh, uh, based on what we've done here. And one thing I would say is like, is it's really hard to not use your own data to inform your clinical practice when I, I just want to reiterate, like, these are not instructions. I don't think that these are, should be clinical guidelines. I think this gives us an idea of where things might fall. That being said, 
if I have a patient with a BMI of 35 or to 40, I might empirically set my PEEP somewhere around 12 to 15. Um, uh, and, and then if I'm having trouble with say oxygenation or ventilation, I would, I would use what is, what's called the um, maximal compliance decremental PEEP maneuvers. And yeah, tell me what from, that is. Yeah, yeah. So these come from uh, uh, from studies out of MGH, and a lot of them are based um, around a fellow named Ray Kasmarek. It's K-A-C-M-A-R-E-K. Um, and if you really want to learn about about um, uh, peep maneuvers in the ICU, his his work is pretty is pretty amazing. And and Lorenzo Barra, uh, uh, one of his uh, one of the physicians involved with those, that work, uh, those would be good names to look up. But basically, the idea here is that, and this may be what people do clinically without things like esophageal manometry or impedance tomography or some other way to look at the at the, the lungs, um, you would take your patient and you would perform uh, recruitment maneuvers with bringing the airway pressures up to 40 and holding it for, for several seconds, depending on how you were taught or who, you know, but basically you would bring it up, do a couple of recruitment maneuvers. And then set your peep up near 30 or 40 and then step it down slowly. And the idea then is that you are going to step it down till you see a change in compliance. And that inflection point where the compliance changes is roughly about where the peep should be set if you're going to try and do an open lung type of ventilation strategy. So that's a, a way to do to the and, and I would use that's an evidence-based method for improving your aeration and, and opening the lung back up uh, in, in a situation like that in the operating room. And so, you know, I, I have an esophageal balloon. I'm not licensed to use it clinically in the operating room the way, the way it might get used in the, uh, uh, the ICU. And I don't have an impedance tomograph set up to, to look at. But clinically, when I'm doing this sort of thing, I would step the peep up high, try and open the lungs up, and then I would step things back until I see that compliance change, and I would set my peep right around that compliance change. And most ventilators these days will show you that compliance curve, right? So you can look. Sure. Yeah, we use the um, we're using the Drager um, Perseus right now, and and that has you know most of them have a compliance setup in it. You can always calculate your compliance um, uh, in real time. The ventilator is giving you all the things you need to, to calculate your compliance. So that's another way to do it. But basically, the idea is once you see an increase in compliance, you have achieved that lung opening and, and, and you're at least in the ballpark of optimizing the ventilation strategy. Great. And if folks want to calculate their own compliance, how would they do that? <laughs> That seems like a question we need to find a resident for. Yeah. But yeah, it's a change in your volume over your change in pressure. Um, and so you can look at your tidal volume that you're getting on the, the machine, and then you can look at your driving pressure or you calculate your driving pressure, the difference from your end expiratory pressure and your plateau pressure. And it's really important to emphasize that it has to be the plateau pressure and not your not a peak inspiratory pressure. Um, the plateau pressure is what the alveoli are experiencing, not the not the peak inspiratory pressure. Right. So you calculate, you take your uh, plateau pressure minus your PEEP, and then you look at your change in volume at that given change in pressure. Yeah. Um, so you can do it yourself, or as we said, most ventilators are going to do this for you and save you the time. Um, 
I think one of the really, uh, so, so that's a great option. And as you say, you know, there are other ways if you have an esophageal balloon, um, you know, that you can do what you did. If you have an impedance tomograph, which you mentioned, and um, folks at, at MGH are using this, uh, we actually now have one, one of our, our uh, critical care attendings uh, has this and is using it, at least in the ICU, you can actually measure uh, ventilation and perfusion and see as you change your PEEP, if you are increasing or decreasing VQ matching, basically, right? So that you try to right. find that ideal PEEP to, to VQ match. Um, but I want to go back to one thing you said, and I completely agree with you. I think we want to really emphasize to people that nothing that we're saying is meant to be instructional. In other words, don't don't say, oh, I heard on ACRAC that I'm supposed to set a patient with a BMI of 40 at a PEEP of 22. So that's what I did. And, uh, you know, we are saying uh, that there. this is, again, food for thought, interesting findings. And, um, you know, you mentioned 21 plus or minus seven for those most obese folks at the at the time of insuff- uh, of uh, Trendelenburg and robotic docking insufflation which means that it went from 14 to 28. Now, that doesn't mean you couldn't find a patient who wasn't in your study who might need a lower or a higher PEEP. But let's just look at that for a second because I can tell you that outside of, you know, severe ARDS uh, in the ICU, I've never, not only have I never used, I've never seen anybody even come close to using 28 a PEEP in the OR. I mean, not even close. So, So that's what I love about this is that it doesn't tell you everyone with the BMI 40 needs a PEEP over 20 at all. But what it does tell you is they might, they might. And so, as you said, we really should be thinking, how do we individualize our PEEP for a given patient? Now, what do you think? I mean, in the future, do you think this is going to be like when you go to pre-op clinic, you get impedance tomography, uh, you know, like, are they going to, are we going to have a better way to individualize PEEP or for the foreseeable future, do you think we're just going to be, um, kind of doing what you said in terms of trying to look at the compliance and figure out where PEEP might be ideal for a given patient? You know, I don't know uh, what what might become standard of care in the future. I, I think the one of the the things that I, I just, I'm going to pull from uh, Dr. Vidal Mello's uh, editorial is that um, we should be prepared to add some kind of new respiratory monitors to our clinical armamentarium. And the idea is that that will help us follow our, these protective principles that have been developed out to some kind of physiologic meaning. Um, and so I think that's probably, he, he did the, a better job of, of stating it, but I, you know, the esophageal balloon is a pretty easy technique to use and to learn it should be used with some caution. There, there's a very nice recent paper that came out in anesthesiology by um, Camarota et al. And um, they talk about how mechanical ventilation guided by an uncalibrated esophageal manometer may be dangerous. And, and the thought here to remember is that, you know, the esophageal balloon is a index of the pleural pressures. And, um, depending on how I inflate it or where I position it, I can get some different answers. And, and sometimes, and there's some good data from a fellow named Stephen Loring's group out from the Beth Israel saying that, that esophageal pressure is somewhere between plus or minus seven centimeters of water of the actual plural values. So it's, you know, this is, I think one of the reasons why I try and highlight use of something like the maximal compliance decremental PEEP 
or another technique to support your respiratory, you know, to support your esophageal manometry is that, you know, this is not a 100% precise device. It, it can get us very close and it's good. Uh, it, it's um, ability to, to track is really good, but it may not reflect the, 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 the actual pressure in the pleura between the pleura. So it's, I think it's just important to remember that, that even as we add these new techniques or we add new methodology, you have to be very careful about how you interpret them and not just fall into, you know, dialing things into a number and walking away. I think that's the other part of this study I think is really important is things change drastically during the surgery. Um, And, and um, you know, you have a lot of changes in position and pressure, which is why, you know, we often counsel people not to use a pressure-based a method of ventilation in situations like this, where if they lose the pneumoperitoneum, you may suddenly be getting wildly uh, uh, inappropriate uh, ventilatory mechanics or ventilation settings because of that change. You know, the ventilator just adapts to the change. Right. Yeah, I think that's really important. So, uh, you know, just to illustrate what you were saying, if you've got somebody who you've, you're on pressure control and you've got a pressure of, you know, 25 during pneumoperitoneum and all of a sudden they, you know, as you said, the port, you know, breaks or pops out. And now, you know, you were getting 400 cc tidal volumes and your next breath is, you know, 1400 cc uh, tidal volume. Probably not, not ideal for those lungs. Um, so, you know, somebody might be listening to this and ask, wow, you know, it sounds like People might need higher PEEP, uh, and you guys keep saying, well, be careful, and you never know, but why not put everybody on 30 a PEEP? I mean, you know, is there, so what's the downside? Why, why are we concerned about overdoing it? Sure. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the major concerns is, is um, reduction in preload and sort of, car, and, and the, the, the major fear would be cardiovascular collapse of some kind. Another consideration, especially for, for these patients in steep Trendelenburg, is you get redu- reduced venous return from the, from the um, cerebral vessels. So you're, you're causing some cerebral congestion, too. It's a, I, I always think of this as the Monroe-Kelly hypothesis of the chest. You know, you can only put so much stuff in there. And so if we're really putting a lot more uh, air in there and pressure in there, we're going to exclude something else. And in most cases, that's going to be blood. Um, there's really good data, and you, you referred to Dr. Wiener Kronisch earlier, and there's really good data from, uh, from some of her presentations um, about using PEEPs of 20 in the ICU and PEEPs of 25. And in large patients, um, those PEEPs are, are fairly well tolerated, even under, uh, uh, you know, critical uh, uh, um, injury sort of circumstances. So, you know, I think the, the balance here, again, is, is the, this is not a clinical prescription. It has to adapt to your patient. And you may have cardiovascular or hemodynamic problems with a, a patient on a PEEP of 12, um, you know, for various reasons. And so I think it's, you know, this, again, this is, you have to sort of thoughtfully apply these kinds of, of data to your, to your clinical practice. Right. Totally agree. You may have a patient with, for example, elevated ICP. You've got to be really careful about impeding venous return in any way. Um, so you want to individualize care, absolutely. I was struck by um, the fact that even non-obese people, at in, when they were supine before insufflation, at least some of them, and again, I'm sure, I'm sure there was a wide range, but some of them actually had an ideal PEEP above five. Um, 
again, this this is just I think uh, goes to show that there's our idea of five, right? We sh- if we set peep at five, we're in good shape. May not be right even for for normal weight people. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the the e- e- even if you accept a little bit of variability in the, the esophageal balloon. And I quoted you this range of plus or minus seven. And in reality, we are, we consider that's the widest range. In reality, right. we consider it about plus or minus three centimeters of water. You know, even if you take those, that, that caveat and look at these data, some of our normal weight people that we would consider that we're doing perfectly with are, are, probably might benefit probably could have optimized mechanics i almost said might benefit from but i think it's really important to say we don't know if right. people ben- if there's really a true clinically measurable benefit from optimized mechanics there's a lot of suggestions that it's true um but but again i think we need to be very careful about this is not you know this may help you with your physiological reasoning it may help you with your clinical approach but it's definitely not a prescription Uh, based on the numbers. Absolutely. You mentioned in the paper, there are several interesting associations in the data if kind of less stringency was used for testing correction. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk about some of of what you found interesting. Sure. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the things is we, we used a very, very conservative um, statistical approach to this. And so there were roughly 36 or so comparisons for each data point and, or for each, for each, um, about for each parameter. And so we used a very stringent Bonferroni correction. So I didn't take anything without P values less than uh, a thousandth. Um, uh, and so, so if we, if we step back and, and, and use the, the, the statistical model a little less stringently, there, there are some some changes in uh, if you look at things like chest wall elastance, the o- more obese patients had uh, had this sort of had some things that looked like maybe their elastance was less, so that there may be some in, the, the the thought here is maybe at certain levels of obesity there's a change in the biology and an inflection point around things like elastance or um, resistance. Um, I would say that, you know, we, we know that there are changes to the pulmonary architecture that are not well described or understood once you get out into very severe obesity. And I think there's, I think the interesting thing is if you look at these data, things that, that seem a little, a little interesting out on the far end, probably we, we do think there are some interesting biologic bases to those, but it's not clear what they are yet. Okay. Well, that leads me to my next question, which is, what additional studies do you think are needed? What are you, maybe something you're planning or you know is out there or you just think should be done and not sure yet who's going to do it? Yeah, I had, a, like I said, I was speaking with Dr. Vidal Mello at length yesterday. And one of the things that is very apparent is that a lot of work has been done to try and come up with good measures of post-operative pulmonary complications or some, something that is a, a good measure of how well we're doing with a ventilation strategy. And my personal opinion is that we need some sort of biological marker. And that is a bit of a holy grail in terms of lung injury, especially in terms of like a subclinical ventilator-induced lung injury. Um, One of the things that we're working on right now here at at UVM is a study on the 
the damage associated protein patterns or you know uh, levels of extracellular matrix fragments in association with impaired ventilatory mechanics um, and that's i mean we're we're deep in the middle of that right now so i don't have any i don't even have any good preliminary data to talk about but i think in terms of of going forward before we embark on another large multi-center trial of some kind of of a ventilation strategy, I think we need at least a good biological measurement that's that's going to help us determine whether or not we're we're doing something beneficial. Yeah, that makes a lot or at of least sense. Preventing preventing some kind of injury. <laughs> yeah, 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 and uh, and that will help with the clinical correlation that you talked about, which is that we may be starting with with your work to get an idea of how to optimize mechanics, but we don't know if optimizing mechanics actually improves outcomes. And that would be another important thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's difficult to say just yet. It, it took, you know, if you go back and look at the, the ArdsNet study, that, that was a landmark study, but it was preceded by 10 plus years of work in that field uh, before we got to the position of definitively saying that was a good thing to do. And there's been some work, if you look at um, Daniel Talmore's work in the New England Journal a few years ago, I think 2009, using esophageal manometry guided uh, PEEP settings for ALI, that was subsequently done in a much larger group, a uh, much larger cohort with, with relatively equivocal results. And so I think it, it is one of these things where the, the, the concept is sound, but its application is still really in evolution and, re- and, and refinement. Um, and I, I just think we need, I'm, I'm a bio, a sort of a biologist by training. And so, uh, I think we really need some kind of, of biological molecular measurement that we're doing something because, you know, subclinical lung injury may just not ever manifest in a way that's, that, that, that is meaningful. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, Gabe, anything you want to add before we, uh, move on to our random recommendations section? No, I don't have anything else to add. All right, well, let's do it. Let's make our random recommendations. What do you have in this time of COVID to recommend to the audience something they check out or could could uh, maybe be a way for them to fill some time? Sure. Um, I, I've been reading a lot of Haruki Murakami, who's a mm-hmm. Japanese author, uh, and uh, I won't even begin to try and uh, uh, explain his stories or try and give you a sense they're very dreamlike, uh, pretty interesting uh, stories, and there's a bunch of them. And uh, I think Kafka by the by the shore is probably the the best one to start with. Um, but I really I really have enjoyed the Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Nice, um, yes, and I think he maybe the most recent one was one Q one was it one nine Q four one Q eight four one Q eight four. Yeah, it's a, a very interesting book, but uh, I would. No, I would start with uh, Kafka by the shore. <laughs> yeah, so I went. I agree with you. I actually had started with one Q eight four, then went back and read Kafka by the shore and a couple others. Maybe I, I don't remember which ones, but anyway, I liked them all. But I think you're right. Going the opposite direction is probably a good way to go. Yeah, they're very fun, and especially for anesthesiologists or ICU doctors that spend a lot of time with people in altered states of consciousness at various levels. Those books are uh, are kind of fun to uh, to think about. 
Absolutely. Great recommendation. And mm-hmm. I would say um, for mine, one thing I've checked out recently, my wife and I have started watching a show. It was initially on FX and now it, you can get it on Amazon Prime, but it's called The Americans. I don't know if you've watched this. It's a, it's really well done. Uh, we are, I think, just finished season one. And it is um, about two KGB agents posing as uh, Americans in the 80s. Uh, and they're kind of how how their life plays out and the conflicts as they kind of deal with being Americans, having kids who are Americans who don't know what they're actually doing and yet still working for the KGB at a time when the Cold War was very much in, in uh, its peak. So really, really interesting show, and I recommend it. Um, check that out. Yeah, check it out. Well, Gabe, <laughs> uh, this was great, super, super uh, informative and a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely, Jed. Thank you so much for having me. All right. That was fantastic. I really, really thought that was just such an important lesson in how we need to sometimes challenge our preconceived notions, be willing to think outside the box. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com, where you can leave a comment and others can learn from what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And of course, there's a Facebook group for ACRAC as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And, of course, if you'd like to support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make individual one-time donations anytime you'd like by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and already become patrons. We really appreciate it. Big thanks as always to Dr. Brian Park, our tech lead, to April Liu, our social media manager, and Dr. Kimia Kashkuli, who's still helping out. Our original ACRAC music is by the one and only Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Gabe Sharp, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.